please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is God's Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from, the, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. and You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, 
The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Okay, pastor, please tell me that you don't literally believe in a talking snake. I mean, come on. Of course I do. Now, I've never encountered one. And the Bible doesn't suggest that that's just a a kind of a typical thing. You know how snakes are. They talk sometimes. This is treated as a unique event, because it was. Uh, There is that story in the Old Testament about a donkey that talked once. Yeah, and there's also a story about a bush through which God spoke. That's not to suggest that donkeys talk or that bushes talk. It is to suggest that God can speak through whom he will. And Satan also, in this case, spoke through the mouth of a serpent. In fact, he is so strongly identified with this event that he is referred to all the way to Revelation as the serpent. It's not the only thing he's called, but this was a manifestation of supernatural evil there in the garden. Now, you might say, uh, Pastor, please explain to us where did the devil come from and how did he get into the garden? Well, I'm sorry we're not tackling that this morning. But I did mention in Genesis 1 that one of the reasons why some people believe that it should say the earth became formless and void is because there apparently were some other things going on in the heavenly realms. And the timeline of all that is not specified in Scripture. But these are the facts. Speculation about how did it happen this way, how did it get to this point, what's really going on. Let's deal with what we do know. What we do know is that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The first time that Satan shows up on the scene, he does what he's still doing today, tries to get people not to believe what God has said. And one of the ways he does that is by twisting what God has said so that people will begin to dialogue and think about, well, now, wait a minute, did God really say that? Or, well, no, he didn't say that, he said this. And then Satan comes with his second punch. It's called a one-two punch. Boom, boom, okay? The second punch is, oh, well, it's not true. Did God say this? Well, no, he didn't say that. He said this, well, that's not true. That's the way Satan is still operating today. 
He wants people to disbelieve the truth of God's word. And what better place to start than back in Genesis 1 through 3? I mean, if we can get folks not to take this seriously, then, you know, it's hard to take all the rest of it seriously. Of course, we do have that problem about the man who rose from the dead. The evidence for that, for anybody willing to bother to do the homework, is overwhelming. It is very, very clear that it is very, very true. And so if Jesus really is who he claimed, and he is alive, maybe we ought to see what he says about the scriptures. And when we do that, if you bother to read the letters in red, you'll find out you need to read the rest of the letters too, because it's all true. All scripture is God-breathed. This is his word. We need to believe it and learn from it, because it will totally revolutionize your life. So, He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Two things. It's interesting that the tree that they were not to eat from was in the middle of the garden. In other words, That forbidden thing was there right in the middle of things. You and I may find, as we go through life, that certain things we know we ought not to do are always readily available. Have you noticed that? I have. In my life, I don't have to go a long way to find temptation. I don't have to look outside myself to find that I need to do this, not that. I need to be careful to obey God, to walk humbly before him. Well, the second thing about that statement of Eve's is, where did God say you must not touch it or you'll die? I I don't remember that. Do you? Because it's not there. You see, a rule got added to what God said in order to try and help avoid trouble. Now, I can't say for sure that Adam was the one who told her that. Or if she just made that up. Or if she and Adam had kind of agreed on that together. But I will say this. I know full well the temptation of placing additional rules beyond what God has said in order to try and get people to obey God's rule. It doesn't work, but we try. As parents, I used to take often the lead in setting boundaries. My wife was, still is, one of the most generous 
giving people and I think finds it more difficult than I do, even though she sees things in black and white. I mean, this is right, this is wrong. But when it comes to adorable little children, very hard for her to say no. She has done it on occasion, but it's, it comes more easily to me. And so, when we would go to visit my parents in Montreat, North Carolina, and I had at that point just three little boys, two of whom were running around, okay? Clayton and Andrew were out wanting to run in the woods and so forth, and I wanted to be sure, especially in wintertime, around Christmas, if we were over there visiting, I wanted to be sure that they didn't get all wet and dirty by playing in the stream that flew through the woods, flowed through the woods, behind my parents' house. Here's this stream going along, and that is such a tempting thing. And so I would say to the boys, Yes, you may go out in the woods, and yes, you may go down to the stream, but I want you to stay far enough back from the stream that if you were to accidentally fall headfirst toward the stream, you wouldn't be able to touch it with your fingers. You understand? In other words, you can go down to the stream, but don't get too close. Because I know from being a little boy what happens with little boys. And that is, you know you're not supposed to get in the stream, you're just going to go up to the edge. And then, whoops, you fall in and, well, hey, now it was an accident, so it doesn't matter, I'm all wet, I might as well play. I, I know that doesn't happen with girls, does it? Of course it does. It's human nature. So what do we do in order to try and prevent accidents from happening. Well, we, we move the boundary back. Not only can you not do this, which would be sin, you cannot do this, which might lead to sin. And then pretty soon, if, if this has been forbidden in order to protect against this, now we're having to put boundaries back here to keep people from getting too close to where they might be too close to doing something wrong. Legalism does not build godliness, it just builds more legalism. And I'm telling you, I have to guard against that in my own heart. Because as Paul tells us in Colossians, it is of no value whatsoever. It might have an appearance of wisdom, but it is of no value in guarding against fleshly lusts. So you're saying it's okay for us to get right up to the edge of the stream? I'm saying it's stupid. Don't do that, okay? We don't want you to get wet. We don't want you to fall in. We don't want you to get messy and dirty. But I'll tell you this. We need to recognize on the front end that all of us have already fallen into the stream. As a matter of fact, many of us ran down there and jumped in the stream. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that sin is no big deal. No, the consequence of that sin is death. That's what happened. God did say that you must not eat from that tree or you'll die. And Satan says, not true, not true. You will not surely die. 
God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God says at the end of the chapter, now they're like us, they know good and evil. Well, so was Satan telling the truth? No. Part of what he was saying was true, but the part about you will not surely die, that was a lie. And furthermore, he was using a twisting of the truth to try and impugn the nature of God, to suggest that the reason God is saying don't do it is because God doesn't care about you. God feels threatened by you. God doesn't want you to become like him and live up to your potential. Satan is still doing that today. Telling people that God really is not to be trusted. You can't believe what he says, and you got to understand he is not looking out for your best interests. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. God is love. And God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but so that he'd be saved. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. God is for us. But the devil doesn't want you to believe that. He wants you to think you can't trust God's word because you cannot trust God. So they trusted the serpent. Talk about getting it upside down. Totally crazy. The creator of all things versus one of the things in creation. And Eve thinking she could become wise and seeing that that was a good-looking piece of fruit and it's edible, okay? Let's just try it. Doesn't give any indication how long she considered this decision, just tells us what the outcome was. And Adam was with her. He was right there! What did Adam say? Crunch. But not until after he saw that she didn't collapse on the ground and turn to ash. Okay? She ate some and then hands some to him and so he eats it. But something did happen. Suddenly, They were ashamed. They were aware of their nakedness for the first time. Previous chapter, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What a beautiful innocence. Wasn't virtue, just innocence. Closest you get to seeing that innocence is, of course, little children who are not viewing the world yet the same way that we do. One of my favorite stories about a little kid was apparently a true story from a mom who was in, I think, Destin, Florida. Sounds more like Panama City, actually. But um, she was driving along the beach, and there was a woman who was a passenger in the car in front of her. 
And suddenly, that woman in the car in front of her, which was a convertible, stood up and flashed her torso, devoid of a swimsuit or any other cover-up, in the direction of the mom and her little boy who was in the vehicle behind. Okay? Now, the woman in the car in front probably didn't know who would be back there. She was just being vulgar. But she did that. And the mom, of course, was horrified and trying to immediately think, as parents do, what am I going to say? But before she could say anything, her little boy said, Mommy, that woman wasn't wearing a seatbelt. I love that. Rules being broken there. What did she do? What did she do? She stood up in her car. She wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Early childhood is the closest we ever get to the Garden of Eden. But I'll tell you something. Even those glimpses of innocence in certain attitudes of small children cannot cover up for the fact that the youngest child is already a sinner by nature. All of us sin. And the reason is because we're sinners. We're born sinners. Death entered the picture, and they not only became ashamed, they became fearful of God. They became alienated from him. And they began blaming others. When they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, they ran and hid themselves. They had made coverings for themselves, some clothes for themselves out of leaves, God would make a covering that required a blood sacrifice. He gave them a covering of animal skins. That was the first sacrifice pointing toward the Lamb of God who would one day die to atone for our sins. So, having sewed together fig leaves... Anybody here ever handle fig leaves? They're kind of itchy. I just, I think that should be mentioned. So they're wearing these itchy clothes that they made for themselves out of fig leaves. And when they hear the sound of God, they try and hide. Trying to hide from the Almighty is a fool's errand. God knows everything. God sees everything. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all together. God knows everything all the time. God knows how many hairs are on top of your head. And your head. And your head. And your head. And your head. So that's a lot to keep track of. God knows everything. Just as his power is infinite, his knowledge is infinite. And it's not a strain. I, I have, as I recall, a phone that has about a, a, is it called a terabyte of memory? 
It's like I got the, you know, the one that has so much memory that I'm never going to see. Your memory is almost gone. I can't afford for that to happen to my phone because it's happening to me. Okay? So I got to have a phone that has more memory than I do. But God doesn't just have a vast amount of knowledge. God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. Everything. But God comes and he plays along. Where are you, Adam? As if God didn't know. So Adam tries to explain why he's crouching down in the bushes. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, God asked this because he'd been busy in another part of the garden and didn't see what Adam did. Is that right? No, God knew. Well, then why does God ask? Because we need to confess. We need to confess. We don't confess because God needs to know. I need to tell him what I did so that he'll know and then he can decide what to do. God already knows. He's already decided. But we need to confess. And so God asked him the question and the man told him, "Uh, yes, it's my fault, I did it. Nope, not what the man said. Not what people say. Instead, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I mean, you know, it's really not my fault. I mean, yes, I did do a bad thing, but, but you're the one who put the woman here with me, and she's the one who got me to do it, so it's really on her and on you. Don't blame me. That's human nature. So God turns to the woman, and he said, what is this you've done? And the woman said, uh, It was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. Not my fault. So the Lord God deals with the serpent. And what he pronounces here is not only judgment on the serpent, but a promise of Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, it says in the NIV, offspring. The more literal is the seed, which is really odd since in old-fashioned terminology, women don't have seed. That's the man. The man has the seed, and, but this is saying the seed of the woman. Why? Because Jesus was not going to have an earthly father. Jesus would be the offspring of the woman, fathered by God. All that's in this passage? Absolutely, because God wasn't making this up. Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. You see, you and I are in time. We're moving in linear fashion through history. God, as we said a moment ago, sees the end from the beginning. God is beyond time. God created time. Time is a 
temporary phenomenon in creation. There will come a time when time will be no more. There will come a day when it will always be light because the Lord will be our light. Hallelujah. So, God promises that the serpent is going to get his head crushed, even though he will bruise the heel of Messiah. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. The pain, with pain, you will give birth to children. And then he says something that is, is really, uh, I'm looking to see how many minutes I have here. <laughs> Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So is this saying part of the curse is that women desire men? No, that's not it, actually. This word is used only in two places in the Scripture. One is in Song of Songs, where it's talking about the romantic desire of a man and a woman, okay? Isn't it lovely? But the other is not generations later, as language has evolved. The other place where it's used is in the next chapter. The very next chapter. Verse 7 of chapter 4. We're going to look at that, even though our study is not of chapter 4 this morning. But look at verse 7. God is warning Cain, if you do what is right, will will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What does sin want to do to Cain? Kiss him? No. Sin wants to control him, but he must master it. This is a struggle for control. Who's going to be the master? And part of the curse is not only greater pain in childbirth, it is that the woman is going to want to control her husband, but he has to control her. Now, it isn't just love and kisses in marriage. Now it's a power struggle in marriage. That is a part of the curse. The idea of men being in the lead, that was there before the fall. Adam blowing it when they're standing there with a snake talking to him, that was his fault. Eve sinned, Adam sinned, and Adam's sin is transmitted to us. Why? Because he was the head. It's called federal authority. He was the head. And he blew it. And all of us and all the generations that have followed suffer as a result. Well, I think we need to point out, though, that Eve Eve sinned first. That is zero excuse. That is no excuse whatsoever. Because Adam was the one who was supposed to be taking the lead. He was supposed to be protecting her. He was supposed to be leading her. He was instead 
passively watching to see what happened to her. So, part of the curse is that she will have this desire for mastery over her husband and he will rule over her. Now he speaks to Adam. He says, because you listened to your wife. You see that? Don't overlook that. So men are never supposed to listen to their wives? No, men are supposed to make decisions based on what God says And if your wife is saying something in agreement with what God says, you better listen to your wife. But if your wife is saying something that does not line up with what God says, you need to obey God. Not only for your sake, but for hers and your children's. Okay, Pastor Wood, yesterday uh, you made it sound as if marriage is kind of the the norm and uh, where does that leave single people? Well, we can talk more about that another time. But I will tell you, if you want to see the picture of perfect humanity, look at a single man by the name of Jesus. This is not to demean single people. It is to say that the norm is marriage, that is the standard, or you and I wouldn't be here. You understand? So, he says to Adam... Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. The woman who was going to have children is now going to have children, but it's going to be much more painful. The man who was already commanded to work the ground and take care of it is now going to find that a painful process. Work is not a consequence of the fall. The difficulty we have in work is a consequence of the fall, okay? I planned out exactly how I wanted the guys to redo the guest bathroom at my house. And I decided that while I was going to save the sinks, I wanted to replace the countertop with a better, newer counter. It would go more with the redo. So in order to get ready to redo the counter, which has already been ordered and was on the truck in the driveway, they had to remove these sinks, and they got the first one out fine, and the second one, they broke. Well, they're a match set, and you can't buy them anymore. They don't make them. What happened? Adam sinned. And now our work is filled with things going wrong. I don't care what you do for a living. Stuff goes wrong. Whatever you do. Well, not me. I do everything perfectly. You are lying to yourself. Okay? Just ask the people around you if you do everything perfectly. Things don't always go our way. Even when we try so hard to get it right, do you understand how difficult it is for everybody is magnified for those of us who have OCD tendencies? Okay, Because we think if we plan it out really carefully and we're really diligent and we work really hard, and then stuff still just blows up. The fact of the matter is, you can till that soil, 
fertilize that soil, plant with good seed, but weeds are going to go, hello? I didn't plant those. No, but we're here. It happens. That's a result of the fall. You and I are living on a planet that has continual reminders of the fall. We are surrounded by things that tell us this world is not your home. We are surrounded by illness, by war, by crime, by, oh, oh, not here. I mean, we're in a wonderful little bubble called Where's Valley Ranch, where everyone is good all the time. Uh, Keep your eyes open. This world manifests the fallenness of man. Death is around us. And the creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. But folks, Jesus came to save. The promised one actually came and delivered on his promise. And because of him, we can look forward to the day when everything's going to be made new. But there's going to be a big fire first. Read 2 Peter 3 and understand that the people who talk about global warming have totally underestimated what's coming. Okay? 2 Peter 3 makes it abundantly clear that God is waiting, giving opportunity for more people to repent, but the day is going to come when he's going to say, enough is enough. And the heavens and the earth will be one giant conflagration. Pastor Wood, you're making me nervous. Oh, you and I don't need to be nervous. Those who are trusting in Jesus, we're going to be fine. Because we're going to be in him. That is the only safe place in the universe. To be in Christ. If you're in Christ, you can face the future unafraid because whatever comes, you're going to be okay. But sometimes bad things happen. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're in Christ, it's temporary. Temporary. I have a friend, dear friend, helped build this building financially. Paid for Christopher House. He's in hospice care right now. He's not terrified. He's looking forward to being at home. Finally, home. You and I don't have to be afraid. Whatever comes. Whatever comes. But the reason is because God not only gave them a promise of salvation, God actually, having kicked them out of the garden, made it so they could not have access to the tree of life and stay in that horrible condition eternally. But 
in Jesus, we are given eternal life. Because those who are in Christ will stay with him eternally. God may seem like he's being mean, kicking them out of the garden. No, he was actually being merciful. Because if you and I thought that it's supposed to be like this forever, we have completely underestimated the glorious things that God has in store for those who love him. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. We're amazed by your love. We pray now that you would help us to live in such a way as to say thank you every day, eager to do your will, grateful for all you have done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.